It's time to lock in. The most amazing, sensational, dramatic, exciting, thrilling finish. Live from Mobile, Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP presents 99 yards away. Win this game for one another. The final drive with Corey LaBounty and Nick Wiggins. Do your job and play together. The final drive. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. I cannot believe it! Welcome to a Thursday edition of the Final Drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Brauner sitting in for Triple G as Triple G's tending to that newborn baby that he has. Triple G scheduled to return back to work next week, and we have a great show scheduled for you this afternoon. Of course, here in the state of Alabama, it's the battle for the belt, South Alabama taking on Troy on ESPN2 this evening. We'll talk about that big-time Sunbelt Conference matchup. Also, here momentarily, Tim Brando from Fox Sports scheduled to join us. Al Whedon at the 4 o'clock hour to talk about the MCPSS Television Network Game of the Week. Viger hosting Sidney Lanier from the Montgomery area. Lindsey Crosby will give us a wrap-up on the Texas Rangers winning their first ever World Series. And then we have the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. Chase Goodbritt will be joining us from the Tuscaloosa News along with Philip Dukes from Auburn Undercover. So a busy Thursday edition of the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Of course, tonight in the NFL, you have Tennessee and Pittsburgh playing one another, and that is a huge game as far as from the Steelers' standpoint trying to get back on track. And Will Levis is the quarterback that's going to be starting for the Titans. We'll see if he's able to continue his winning ways as well. And I I know that when you do look at the biggest headline that was yesterday, that was the huge one in regards to Bobby Knight passing away. And Bobby Knight at the age of 83 passing away. One of the the Mount Rushmore coaches for certain. And you do know that as far as Bobby Knight is concerned, being the last undefeated coach for a college basketball team, you think about all the great college basketball teams that we've seen. And Bobby Knight was the last to have that honor in regards to college basketball uh, for sure. And also some interesting news today, McGill Tulin repeating as your 7A state champion in volleyball. And that's huge from a McGill Tulin standpoint because we know about the Dirty Dozen and we've had some attempts here to bring some blue maps back to the Mobile, Alabama area Congratulations to a great season for the Sarah Land Spartans, the Mobile Christian Lady Leopards. You look at them coming up a little bit short on yesterday. And also, you look at UMS Wright coming up a little short today as well. But those red maps, nothing wrong with coming back to Mobile with the red map because that means you're one of the top two teams in the entire state of Alabama. And McGill Tulin did what is hard to do, which is repeat as the 7A state champion in girls volleyball. And I know that 
you do have South Alabama versus Troy tonight. Troy has absolutely dominated this series, and with them dominating this series, it makes it really tough for you to have to try to, if you're South Alabama, to kind of right that wrong. And what I mean by right that wrong, losing the last six games in a row to the Troy Trojans, not only losing the last six games, today you kind of add a little insult to injury, having the local former McGill Tulin star Carlton Marshall having his own day and being honored at, with the coin toss. I know we talked with him here on the final drive last week as the NCAA's all-time leading FBS tackler. And with him doing the coin toss and having his own poster there today, I know there's a lot of Carlton Marshall fans, and he'll be near and dear to Troy's heart. But one of the things that you look for South Alabama, Carter Bradley, starting quarterback for South Alabama, goes down holding his knee at the end of that Raging Cajuns loss on Saturday, and that makes it real tough for him to have to deal with. And I know because of that, you may have to go with the true freshman in Gio Lopez. So we'll see here if Gio Lopez has to go ahead and have an opportunity to get the start, either he or Desmond Trotter. Desmond Trotter hasn't gotten a lot of reps. You see Gio Lopez with those reps. So we'll see how that will wind up working its way out on ESPN2 for the South Alabama Jaguars. National television exposure, you will see that battle of the belt. I love wrestling, so anytime they came up with the concept of that championship belt that will be either staying in Troy or coming back home to Mobile, Alabama, I know there's nothing more than the Jaguar faithful would love to the season not going exactly like they would love it to go right now, but have an opportunity to bring that belt back for sure. And I know... Michael Brauner, today when you look at what South Alabama is going to have to do on the big stage, it's going to be interesting to see what they're able to do in this Sunbelt Conference matchup. And we'll get back to this Sunbelt Conference matchup in just a moment because we are joined by Fox Sports Tim Brando. Tim Brando joins us this afternoon here on the final drive. How's everything going, Timmy B? Oh, I'm good, Corey. Just got off a plane a little while ago in Detroit. Made my way uh, over to East Lansing where we've got uh, Spencer and I have uh, the Spartans uh, against Nebraska uh, at noon on Saturday. Nebraska for the first time since 2016, I think it is, trying to become bowl eligible. So, uh, very quietly and under the radar, Matt Rule, after a 0-3 start, has won five of his last six games. So uh, that's the storyline. Um, and it's good to be in the eastern time zone or the central time zone as opposed to um, out in Oregon or out in Washington or out in, <laughs> out in uh, San Francisco, which is where we were last, year, uh, last week. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in the Pac-12, which is a blast. The league is great. Uh, the games have been very compelling, but the, the trips back and the uh, jet lag that comes from all those red eyes I have to take so I can get home Sundays before noon, uh, I can do without that. So it's nice to have a reprieve and do an early game on Saturday that I can get home Louisiana on Saturday night. So 
um, looking forward to it. Absolutely love to hear you and your partner Spencer on the call. And I know that, Tim, there's a lot going on, not only in college football, but I wanted to touch bases on the story that broke while we were on the air yesterday afternoon here on the final drive in regards to Bobby Knight. And growing up, I know I watched your tremendous coverage of all NCAA basketball, but especially, you know, when you look at the general, Robert Knight, Bob, Coach Bobby Knight, and all his, whether you liked him or you didn't like him, it, that was irrelevant because at the end of the day, I think that, you know, his resume does speak for himself. He is on that Mount Rushmore of basketball coaches for myself. And your encounters and times with Bobby Knight, would love for you to share those thoughts. Well, I, I saw the good, the bad, uh, and the ugly from, <laughs> from Coach Knight. But I will tell you that uh, my takeaway uh, overall from the many, many years that I uh, encountered him, and it was a privilege to get to cover uh, Coach Knight in his heyday, which, which I did. Uh, I was coming of age and getting my first uh, opportunities in, in, in radio when he was winning uh, the 1976 title. Uh, I was still uh, in, you know, in school and coming up and working at radio stations as both a disc jockey and a sportscaster uh, while in school during that period. And then by 1981, I had already been in Baton Rouge for a couple of years, and I was following Dale Brown to his first Final Four at LSU. And, of course, uh, they met Coach Knight in the uh, semifinals uh, in Philadelphia. And that was the first time I was ever in his midst. And then, and then you know, you fast forward to 1985, 86, as I'm making the move to ESPN as a broadcaster, to call some of those games, uh, games involving uh, Notre Dame uh, with Digger Phelps and all those Big Ten matchups with uh, the Lou Du, Lou Henson, and Gene Cady at Purdue and, and uh, Dr. Tom Davis and Iowa, the Hawkeyes. Those, those games were uh, incredible. And to be side-by-side side with uh, Dick Vitale for all that was incredible. I, my, my, my glaring uh, biggest, most uh, emotional moment, though, uh, came when I was thrown out of his practice. Uh, I'd, been told, I'd been told before a big Monday game that Dick and I were going to do that practice was open. Vital had not made it into town yet, into Bloomington. And um, I went to the practice. I'd done a game at Michigan with Dick uh, a week earlier. And... Um, and he took exception, I think, with what he thought I had said but really didn't say uh, during the Michigan telecast. And as I walked into the gym in Bloomington in the Assembly Hall, he began berating me, cussing me upside down, uh, and telling me to get the blank out of his gym and don't you ever uh, come in here again. Don't you ever think about covering my team. I mean, it was really – I was 31 years old. I was still – new and, and hoping to be uh, widely accepted by every coach that I had to work with. So it was an emotional time, an emotional moment. And I, I remembered my sage advice from my mentor. Bob had no idea that my mentor was the great Kurt Gowdy. Mm. Uh, Bob, Bob loved Kurt Gowdy and was on his American Sportsman show many times. And without Kurt Gowdy, Bob would have not met his hero, who was Ted Williams. Uh, maybe the greatest hitter in baseball history. 
whom he idolized. And so I, I remember having met uh, and been mentored by uh, Mr. Gowdy back in 1982 at the Final Four. I remember viv- vividly Gowdy telling me if I ever did a Bob Knight game, not be intimidated, and if he ever tried to bully me, to stand up to him. And so after he berated me in front of his team, and I think that was part of it, he was using me for effect to let his players know that not only did he intimidate them and instill fear in them to get uh, a better uh, response and, and better play out of them, but he would, he would bully and, and, uh, and, and try to intimidate anyone, including the guys on TV. So he was using me, and uh, rather than just cowering and hold, you know, sinking down into the moment and appearing small, uh, I stood up. Uh, from the uh, seat that I was in courtside and proceeded to tell him what a no-good blankety-blank I, I thought he was <laughs> and what a, uh, what a thrill it would be to leave his practice because no one ever learns anything at your practice anyway <laughs> because you run, the same, you run the same damn motion blank <laughs> offense that everyone knows what's coming. And then I just stormed out, slammed the door behind me, inside assembly hall <laughs> i did all of that and then I, as i walked out of the room i got oh my god what did i just say what i just told one of the greatest coaches in the history of the game to go blank himself <laughs> so, I, i'm pretty emotional i get i get to the hotel the holiday inn in bloomington vital shows up and dick loved uh, the general he he went on and on i'm sure you can hear it ringing in your ears He's the general. He's loving Montgomery Knight. He's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, and, and so I get to the hotel, and uh, everyone knew, uh, and certainly Bob uh, knew that I was from Louisiana, and um, he knew that he didn't like Dale Brown, and Dale Brown didn't like him. So he revved up a little bit of a hatred for me because of my association with Dale. And I went to Vital, who, who loved Dale Brown as well, and I said, I said, Dick, I don't give a blank what you think about him. You say anything great tonight, I'm going to blah, 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 blah. I got news for you. He bullied me. He treated me like um, he treated me like someone beneath him. And, and Dick immediately said, Timmy, you don't understand. He's testing you, baby. He tests everybody. He treats everybody like that. But what did you do? What did you say? And I told him. I said, I stood up to him. I told him off. I cursed him back. And he said, oh, that's going to be great. You watch tonight. He'll come over. He'll tap you on the butt, tell you, you know, you're a good guy, and he thinks the, be- the best of you. And sure enough, would you know it, as we were coming on the air, right before the tip-off, doing our on-camera, he had to walk right by me to get to his bench. He had his program, as he always did, rolled up in his hand. He hit me on the backside, and then he clutched my left shoulder and squeezed it as if to say, hey, man, I'm sorry. And then I looked over because Vital, as usual, was talking. I was listening. <laughs> I turned to look at him, and he gave me a wink and a thumbs up to say, we're good. And you know what? From that moment forward, he had a healthy respect for me as I did for him. And uh, uh, really, our, our relationship was born from that. And then moving forward through all the years, uh, when he was at Texas Tech and he got them into the NCAAs, I covered those teams in the tournament. 
and um, we shared a lot of stories, especially about Kurt Gowdy. And I got to tell him that I told him off because his hero, Kurt Gowdy, was also my hero. And Gowdy told me, never let the guy bully you or he'll try to run over you all the time. That's how he rolled. That's the way Bobby Knight rolled. And he wanted and demanded that the people that he was going to be associated with stand up to him mm-hmm. and not cower when when he was threatening them or belittling them. And that, that was just sort of the method to his madness. And uh, it helped me a great deal. But he did, uh, he did a lot of great things for a number of people that no one knew about because he just didn't want anybody to know. There was a softer side to him, a charming side, in fact. And I don't know many men that coached in any sport that were as intelligent as Bob Knight was about all kinds of things. Very well-read man, uh, but he'll always be uh, viewed as complex and flawed because of uh, so many areas when he lost his temper and the temper got the better of him. There was a Jekyll and Hyde. There was a Jekyll and Hyde quality to him uh, that, that no other person, not just coach, no other person that I've ever grown to know and become friendly with ever had. Tim Brando. Um, and that, that's just who he was, and you got to take that, that aspect of it. He'll always be remembered for a lot of great things that he did, and deservedly so. But that complexity and the memories of those that couldn't stomach some of the tantrums he threw will always be there with him. Tim Brando, our guest this afternoon here on the final drive on WNSP 105.5. And, Tim, we'll jump right back in and stay in the Big Ten Conference in this Michigan mess that's going on. When you see the the footage of Mr. Stallion being on Central Michigan's sideline, that kind of stuff, you know, we've seen – a lot of, of, of weird things go on in college football before. And, Tim, Timmy B., I know you, you've done it for a very long time. I know this has to be one of the more interesting stories that you have ever heard or covered within your college football time. Yeah, it is, no question. But but let's caution this a little bit of a cautionary tale. That's got to be proven still. Sure. Okay? It's got to be proven that that, in fact, was stallion. There's still evidently some doubt about a lot of this. And as I've tried to point out today on social media, if you follow me, and I know you do, a lot of the the fans just don't want to hear the truth. And the truth is, regardless of how you feel about this, whether you're a fan of Ohio State, uh, Michigan, or neither one, you just hate Jim Harbaugh, this is going to take a while. Uh, And I've made the comparison, and I, I really believe it, yeah, uh, spying on other teams and going to the lengths that apparently or allegedly Jim Harbaugh did is beyond the pale, if in fact it's found to be true. But as we learned in the Auburn situation when the father of Cam Newton essentially had him allegedly up for sale and the NCAA got involved in a very similar way at about this time of year back in 2010, the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, the late, great Mike Slive, who, who everyone thought because of his background as a judge, someone that had worked, in fact, heard the Bruce Pearl case as a judge for the NCAA, they all thought he would come down on Auburn. He did anything but. He protected them as best he could 
helped adjudicate it with the NCAA so that the eligibility of Cam Newton would never be questioned. And Cam was able to finish out the season. The rest is history. Now, that was a different time. But the situation for the commission of the Big Ten is not dissimilar to that. In fact, it's, it's, it's very similar. Because what's happening now is the court of public opinion, through many scribes with different uh, services, whether it be Yahoo, ESPN.com, uh, Sports Illustrated, you know, name that writer, they're all calling now for the Big Ten commissioner to step in and use his jurisdiction, which he could, it's certainly within his rights, to step in prior to the NCAA going through their protocols to rule Michigan ineligible. They're saying that because other coaches in the league and because the athletic directors are upset about it, that Commissioner Petiti, Tony Petiti, should act on this. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So, because I know Tony Petiti. I worked for him for nine years. And he was, a, he was around during that Cam Newton situation at CBS with me at that time. This has got to be adjudicated. And the NCAA, for the moment, they are the ones that have to do it. And there's no way, because of the timeline, it can, can be done before the end of the season. Once you get a mailed notice of allegations, a letter of allegations, the clock begins to tick for the attorneys for the university, and that takes 90 days. So this thought process that suddenly, uh, you know, the moral compass of the Big Ten will swoop in and just throw Jim Harbaugh out under the bus. I mean, that's just, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's way, way out of line and, uh, and not going to happen. So my point here is the NCAA, the NCAA should not have, should not have jurisdiction on this. And ultimately the, the commissioners of the leagues should take control. But right now the NCAA has that control and they can't do anything about it, at least for this calendar year. So when you go from looking at the college football playoff predictions that came out as far as one, two, three, and four here in Mobile, Alabama, you, you've seen it, you've lived it, you know how it is definitely in your neck of the woods in Louisiana. This big-time matchup here with Alabama LSU on in primetime, you look at these matchups these past few years, and there's a lot at stake. Alabama ultimately controls its own destiny, and if they do lose, then now you're looking at Georgia-Missouri, finding out what happens in that game. But just want to get your thoughts on the Alabama-LSU matchup and the way that Jaden Daniels has played football this season. Well, the question is going to be on this, Corey. The question on this is going to be which team that's got the greatest flaws has improved the most during the open date. Now, because of the reports about injuries to what little secondary LSU's got, a lot of the Vegas uh, tendencies are that Alabama should be able to, to roll and that they should be able to score enough points to stay with LSU. I'm not so sure about that, okay? Because, you know, Tennessee had a 20-7 to lead, and then for whatever reason – decided to get timid in the second half. Uh, simply put, Brian Kelly doesn't work that way. The LSU offense doesn't work that way. But 
the LSU offensive line is going to be tested. And they got to hold up against Alabama's defensive front, which I do think is a strength. The weaknesses are for Alabama on the offensive side and for LSU and historically bad defense, particularly in its back end. But their down front has improved. Pete Jenkins was rehired, the old defensive line coach, who goes as far back as 1981-82 on that staff, has been brought in by Brian Kelly. We'll see if they can get some pressure on Milrow and allow Perkins, their do-everything linebacker, to make some plays for them. In the game against Missouri, they got a couple of turnovers in the second half and turned that track meet into their favor, and LSU eventually won because they could outscore Missouri. I think what LSU wants to do is force Alabama to score a lot of points. That's a game Nick Saban doesn't want to play with LSU. He does not have the offensive firepower to do that. He wants to control the game, line it up, and bulldoze LSU with its run game and try to allow Jalen Milrow to make throws that he can be confident in. Because if you're forced to make throws that you're not confident in, he can have another Texas on his uh on his resume, and I don't think Milrow or Alabama wants that. I think if the game is played at a track meet pace, LSU wins. If it's played in the 30s or below, Alabama wins. That's how I see it. Uh, frankly, I think Alabama runs out of gas here, and I think LSU gets the victory. Brian Kelly wins for the second consecutive time. It'll be the first time that happened since Les Miles did it in a diametrically different way in 2010 and 11. And in that game of the century, it was, uh, what was it, 9-6? Yes. Or 9-3. Yeah, 9-6. Yeah. That won't work this time. It'll be, <laughs> for LSU to win, it's got to be first one to 40 wins. And uh, if they can get to 40, I think Alabama can't win. If Alabama keeps the game in the 30s or below, I think the Tide gets the job done and they move on. But um, I had Alabama losing a couple of games this year. Uh, and, I, frankly, it could have been A&M, could have been Tennessee, or Ole Miss. didn't happen with either of them. Uh, so I think it will happen this time with LSU winning. Tim Brando, our guest here on the final drive. And, Timmy B., I know on Saturday you'll be on that Nebraska-Michigan State call and always love you and Spencer Tillman hearing you guys get excited to call college football. It's that backside of the season now to where it feels like just the other day we were at SEC Media Days to begin the season, and it, you blink yeah. and it goes by so fast. But as passionate as you are about football, I know there's another one here for our local fans, the Battle of the Belt, South Alabama and Troy tonight. Troy has dominated the last six games of this series. you have any thoughts on South Alabama and Troy tonight? Well, I'm curious as to whether the South Alabama team that whooped Oklahoma State shows up or the South Alabama team that uh, has been refreshingly inconsistent, inconsistent enough that, you know, now all of a sudden it looks like Troy might be in a position to get it done against them again. I, it, that's the thing with, with South Alabama. Um, it's been, frankly, crazy to watch. And yeah. my friend Rich Rodriguez over at Jacksonville State, what a job he has done, by the way. Yes. Uh, just an incredible job he's done. Uh, it's been a wacky season. You know, I look at South Alabama, and I see a team that in that league where Tulane is once again in a position – 
to make it to a New Year's Six Bowl based on the ratings of the the rankings of the college football playoff committee uh, the other night. I, it, you know, South Alabama was a team that everybody thought could beat Tulane early this year. Of course, they proved it a little bit later on with that performance they had against Oklahoma State. Look at what the Cowboys have done since. So that that win for them was really good. They just have to bottle it and and be more consistent with their game. I think South Alabama has the personnel to win the game, but they they've just not been able to put games back to back. That's I think that's the concern you've got to have for them. Tim Brando, can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the final drive on WNSP 105.5. How can everyone not only follow you on Twitter slash X and also go ahead and chime in and check into your great Saturday coverage that you and your partner Spencer will be bringing us? Well, as we said, Saturday, this time it'll be on FS1 at noon with uh, Nebraska and uh, and Michigan State. Next week we're on a six-day hold. I think we'll either be we'll either have TCU in Texas or Oklahoma, West Virginia, depending on uh, what happens with the games this weekend. So we're not sure where we're going to be. Uh, Timmy B on Fox on Instagram. You can also follow me on Facebook as well as uh, on, on X slash Twitter. Probably the easiest thing for your fans in Alabama to do would just be follow the Brando, you ignorant slut tweets, because that's what I'm going to be getting <laughs> for picking LSU to be Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no problem there, Timmy B. I, hey, look, you, you call it like you see him. You got a 50-50 chance of being right, 50% chance of being wrong, but we'll be in full well, well of a I, football game. As I've said many times, Corey, as I've said many times, uh, I don't get paid for predictions. There you uh, go. I just, give, I just give them. You ask. And I and I answer. Okay, I get. Welcome back to the final drive on WNSP 105.5. It's a Thursday edition, and of course that means at five and five thirty we will have our Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. Chase Goodbrit from the Tuscaloosa News and Philip Dukes from AuburnUndercover.com will be our guest during that hour and want to thank Tim Brando for joining us this afternoon and always great to catch up with Timmy B in the app you have people saying hey look surprise surprise that Tim Brando picked against the Crimson Tide like you said he just calls it like he sees them uh, and he will be on the call with Spencer Tillman this Saturday for Nebraska and Michigan State, and tonight we already mentioned South Alabama and Troy on the table, but also you do have some NFL action, Tennessee at Pittsburgh, and Will Levis getting that start for the Tennessee Titans. We'll see if we see vintage Derrick Henry or what we'll get out of Najee Harris and the Pittsburgh Steelers, so plenty to keep your eye on, and Last night, the Texas Rangers clinched their first-ever World Series 5-0. to zero. Winners taking that series four games to one. And anytime you look at a franchise having a chance to win their first ever, that's always special. And a Rangers organization been in business for over 60 years having that opportunity to win it all. And talking about winning it all, 
we touched on Tim Brando a little bit about the Michigan scandal that's going on and the fact that you have the Big Ten coaches asking the commissioner, Tony Petiti, to take action, action immediately for the sign stealing that took place uh, allegedly there by Mr. Stallion. And that whole story continues to unravel. And today the new twist in it was the other coaches in the Big Ten immediately wanting some type of action by the commissioner. And Tim Brando says this is not going to happen. And Broner, it would kind of be shocking if the commissioner lays the gavel down earlier than an investigation continuing to be completed and him making a ruling before he has enough evidence not only for the NCAA to make a ruling but for himself to make a ruling. Yeah, I'm all for due process mm -hmm. or uh, whatever term you want to put on it. Uh, it seems like, obviously, doesn't look great, but I don't think in the middle of the season without a full investigation or whatever you want to call it, you can just say, all right, we need to punish Michigan now, suspend Harbaugh. Or I, I, I mean, I don't I understand being up in arms like, oh, they're just going to keep playing and I, I probably wouldn't be as up in arms if they weren't a national championship contender if this was, I don't know, Purdue or someone like that in the Big Ten. I don't I don't think this would be nearly as big a story, and I don't think there would have been a conference call between the Big Ten uh, coaches demanding something be done about it, but it is what it is. Uh, you know, I, does it look good? No, but nothing you can really do about it right now. You're, what are you going to do, cancel their season? No, you, you're not going to do that again. Like you said, just – doing your due diligence and letting it run its course and find out what's going to go on there. And as we're continuing to talk about the college football matchups, a couple of weeks ago we had Fairhope's own Riley Leonard to step onto the field against Florida State and not be 100% healthy. And now Riley Leonard, according to this report on ESPN, will be out an extended period of time with a left toe injury suffered in the game against Louisville on Saturday. And we saw him have that injury sustained, that late-night game on ESPN versus Notre Dame. And tried to he missed a couple of weeks, came back, played against Florida State. He got hobbled then and then tried to play last week. You, just a gutsy competitor is Riley Leonard. Duke 5-3 and three this season trying to make – to that six win to get back-to-back -back bowl games because you look at Duke's football history, it's not like they're going to a bowl every year with six or seven wins. Last year they had the most wins and coming off of Riley Leonard being healthy, you, you just hate to see that for him having re-aggravated not only that ankle injury, but now you're looking at the toe on the opposite foot of where his ankle injury was, Riley going to be having to sit down for a minute. That's a bummer, man. You know they've they've been in the national spotlight obviously a lot this season. We know how awesome of a kid Riley is. We've had him on this show. We've had him on the morning show. He's uh, always gracious with his time on WNSP. He does a lot for this whole community and the Gulf Coast as a whole. Uh, you know, obviously ev everyone around here loves Riley Leonard, and uh, America was really just starting to get familiar with Riley Leonard this year as well. So 
that really is a bummer. Uh, Duke was having a nice season too. So, is there an exact timetable? You j it just says kind of an extended. Uh, yeah, of time. and I would be willing to bet you, Michael, just watching that injury yeah. occur versus Louisville, it didn't look good. it'll probably sit down for a couple of weeks because now that you have that hobbled right ankle that still is not 100% healthy. Now you're looking at a left toe injury. So now both your feet, mm. and which is vital in Riley's game because he is that dual threat quarterback. He just doesn't sit in the pocket, bounce around, waiting for somebody to get open. He loves to use his wheels, and great wheels he does have. And you take that away from him, and Coach Elko probably doing the right thing there by shutting him down for a couple of weeks for sure. And I know on the other side of this break here, as we get ready for Al Weeding at the top of the four o'clock hour, here are a couple of comments from Nick Saban today. Nick Saban talking to the public about his views on the college football poll and what it means to him, the one that came out on Wednesday night. So on the other side of this break, we'll hear from Nick Saban, who was talking to Pat McAfee today on ESPN. You're listening to The Final Drive on WNSP 105.5 Core of the Bounty along with Michael Bronner on this Thursday edition. Hey, this is Showtime boxing analyst Steve Farhood and you're listening to Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP. Welcome back to the final drive on WNSP 105.5. Nick Saban chiming in on the Pat McAfee show about the college football playoff polls. And, you know, the GOAT, he's going to use his common sense, not really say anything controversial. Nick Saban today. Whenever that CFP top 25 official one comes out for the first time this early in the season, how do you view it? How do you keep it from being a distraction? Do you use it as motivation? And how do you feel about it as a whole this early in the season, Coach? Well, you know, I kind of agree with AJ on this one. Um, <laughs> you know, it really matters where you end up at the end in the last poll if you can get in the top four. Well, the only way you can get in the top four is – to play every game that you have remaining uh, to the best of your ability. And the best way to do that is focus on the things that you need to do every day in practice to create the right habits, techniques, whatever you want to call it. So when you get in a game, you're not thinking about it. You're just out there playing hard and executing and doing what you need to do to help your team win. I think that's the most important thing to do at this stage in the season. So does the poll matter? Yeah, it matters but it doesn't matter until the end. So wherever you're ranked now does not really matter. Uh, what matters is, is how do you finish and how do you finish the season? And that comes one play at a time. Love that. One play at a time. Nick Saban says that's what it's going to take. And controlling your own destiny one game at a time is the Crimson Tide's mantra coming into this game right here. And Coach Saban did the lobbying one year ago to try to get Alabama in. And as we wind up seeing the demolition of TCU in the national championship, we saw them upset Michigan, which was great for college football, not great for Michigan fans. But Coach Saban not saying anything that he hasn't said in the past. And I think as we get closer, especially depending on what happens here, we'll hear Coach Saban's voice get a little bit louder and louder 
as Alabama is going to make that final push. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope Alabama doesn't fall into a situation where Nick Saban, you know, practically has to go on national TV and beg to be <laughs> to be let in once again. Uh, obviously, different when you have one loss versus two. Uh, Tim Brando, if you ask him, Alabama's going to have two after. By the way, the comment in the app. Is th is that like a thing that Tim Brando picks against Alabama? Yeah, a lot? Uh, yeah. I've never heard of that. Yes, he, you know he he knows uh, Tim Brando knows kind of like Paul Feinbaum does sure? that that when you say certain things in certain geographic regions, especially within our listening audience, sure. he, with him being from Louisiana and having covered not only LSU but Louisiana Monroe, being a Louisiana guy. Tim Brando is not going to shy away from picking LSU <laughs> over Alabama. Now, if uh, if you guys didn't hear it this morning, go check it out. Uh, speaking of just because you brought up Feinbaum Sparks, I'm speak check it out on our Twitter or Facebook. Paul Feinbaum this morning on the opening kickoff just tore Dabo Sweeney a new one. It, <laughs> it was awesome. Maybe we'll play that audio a little bit later in the show. Uh, we only got about a minute left till the top of the hour here. But, yeah, I mean, Feinbaum just went in on uh <laughs> Dabo he called him a spoiled brat and said he's irrelevant in college football it was it was it was it was one of of ball of Paul's weekly contributions to the opening kickoff it was uh it was near the top of the list well you know Paul's not one to shy away from his opinion about Dabo and you go back and you like him singing Dabo's praises a couple of years ago when he was winning those national championships, not really calling him a spoiled brat after he did upset Alabama in the national championship game. And when he won his second and was vying for a third, he was like, okay, is this the new goat of college football? So I think fine bomb being fine bomb for yeah. sure this <laughs> the morning. The new goat of college football. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but, but, Again, going scorched earth on him, I, I thought that that was a different take that he definitely had there. So I don't know. One of those situations to someone in the app says, fine, dumb, not fine ball. So yeah, I, everybody's entitled to, to their opinion. Now, when it comes to tearing down a two-time national champion, I, I wouldn't call him spoiled. I wouldn't call him a whining baby. I just oh, think I thought Paul was pretty spot on this morning. I don't know. I've gone back and forth on this Dabo thing a lot. Like, I can really see both sides of the coin. Like, all right, Dabo is putting this uh, <laughs> entitled fan in his place, but Paul's also saying, like, all right, what are we? Why is Dabo listing off his accomplishments? Like, how many? Like you said, like, can you imagine if Saban had done the same? It just wouldn't happen. So, I don't know. I see both sides of it. We'll listen to those comments from this morning's show later on in the second hour. Al Whedon. MCPSS Television Network joining us next here on The Final Drive. The Sound of Mobile presents For the, win. the Final Drive. No, they didn't. Oh, my gracious. Yep. How about that? With Corey Labounty and Nick Wiggins. For the win. Yes. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. Oh. Welcome to hour number two of the final drive on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Bronner joining you on this Thursday afternoon. And this entire school year, we've had Thursday and Friday night. And 
even a couple of times this year we've had Saturday high school football kickoffs, but plenty of Thursday night high school football action to keep you busy here along the Gulf Coast. And don't forget, coming up immediately following the final drive, we'll have the prep spotlight with Pigskin Pete from 6 to 7 o'clock. And also today, to go along with our MCPSS Television Network Game of the Week, you'll also have Baker at Mountain Brook, Jackson at Davidson, St. Luke's at Cottage Hill, and UMS Wright at Williamson. And with that being said, we welcome in my MCPSS Television Network partner, Al Whedon. Al, tonight, a conclusion to Viger and Sidney Lanier's regular season. Yeah, it sure is, Corey. It'll wrap up the regular season for both of the schools. And here's a historical note for those who may not be aware. This will be the last ever regular season football game for the Sydney Lanier Poets. The Montgomery Public School System is closing that school. So they don't even have a freshman class at Sydney Lanier. They sent all the ninth graders to Carver. So that means next year, the remaining uh, sophomores and juniors, they're kind of getting to go to any school they want to go to. So this is actually the, the last ever regular season football game for Sydney Lanier. They have made the playoffs, Corey, so they will play a game next week. They are, they are in the playoffs uh, in their area. Uh, so they, they made the tournament, but as far as regular season, this is it for Sydney Lanier. And, and for the Viga Wolves, they don't want this to be the end of their season at all, Corey, because, you know, they're kind of still in the playoff hunt. Uh, they need to handle their business tonight against Sidney Lanier. Um, it, it's it's kind of a log jam right now in 5A Region 2 where you have BC Rain at 5-2 and two in region play, Faith Academy at 5-2 and two in region play. Viger has wrapped up region play, so they finished with a record of 5-3, and three, but right behind them sits UMS right at 4-3. and three. And UMS Wright plays Williamson tonight, and BC Rain plays Gulf Shores tomorrow, and Faith Academy plays before tomorrow. So you have about four teams trying to jockey for three spots. So a win tonight for Viger is huge because they're playing a, a larger classification team. Uh, Sydney Lanier is a 6A school technically. Even though they only have less than 350 kids in the building, they're still classified as 6A. So for Coach Marcus Cook, they need to get a win. They need to get an impressive win. Not one of those, you know, as they say in the AP rankings, run up the score win. But, but every point will help Viger go a long way because right now it's out of their hands. All they can do is win tonight, and they're going to need some help from a few other teams to lose tomorrow night to, to maybe try to ease up this log jam that's happening in 5A Region 1. Well, that's the great thing here on WNSP that we're going to give you six consecutive hours of high school football, taking you all the way until midnight on tomorrow night early into Saturday morning. And the great part about that is Pigskin Pete and the Piglets are going to need every single minute of that once the post game concludes because of the log jams that are going to have to be figured out. And, I know I was talking to Coach Yelding from BC Rain, who is absolutely playing phenomenal football here as of late. You have to go all the way to the tiebreaker letter L 
on some of these tiebreakers. You know, you have tiebreaker A, B, C. Get all the way to the letter L to determine some of these log jams across the state of Alabama, and especially here locally in 7A, 6A, and 5A. I have to tip my hat to Coach Yelding. I know he's a very astute and knowledge young man, and for him to do that research, I commend him. But, Corey, I will probably have to stop at tiebreaker uh, D for dumb. That's me, because when you get past D, you're getting into a whole other area. As Coach Marcus Cook told us on the phone the other night, there's a possible scenario where things will play out where they would need W.S. Neal to beat T.R. Miller to get so many quality points. You know, and I'm like, Viger never played W.S. But it's not about who Viger played. It's about the opponents they faced. It's that complicated. So I don't want to try to have to take an ibuprofen before uh, Pigskin Pete wraps up tomorrow night (laughs) to ease the headache. But it's going to be a lot of shaking going on. It's going to be a lot of disappointed folks. And for the most part, we can pretty much say, there's possibly going to be a team with a winning record in 5A Region 1 not making the playoffs, Corey. That's what it's going to come down to. It's a sad thing to say, but it is what it is. It's a nine-team region, and when everyone kind of beats up on everyone and, you know, control the head-to-head matchups, we have these issues. So uh, it's kind of the same thing in 7A Region 2. Right now, Davidson is in the playoffs, and they know they're going to face Central Phoenix City. But MGM and Baker and Daphne, they have no idea who they're going to play because you have three teams tied for second place in 70 Region 2. So it's just kind of – and we won't know because they're still playing region games. That's a nine-team region. So when you get a nine-team region, you're going to play a region game probably nine times out of ten the last week. So this is, this is familiar territory. Uh, it's just that uh, going down the alphabet to L – I mean, I have to commend Coach Yeldon on that one. <laughs> that's that's some deep insight right there. But yeah. he wants his kids to be prepared, and he wants them to be have all the knowledge and know what they're up against. Because BC Rain has a very good chance to uh, really, really, really make them make the playoffs, and, and and possibly, you know, there there are scenarios where they could maybe end up at number one. Who knows? So it, it is quite interesting how all this comes down to the last week. But I love it, man. It, it is what it is. Al, I want to ask you about 6A for a minute. Uh, obviously, you got St. Paul's and Theodore tomorrow as the WNSP game of the week. It's really mostly for seeding. Uh, obviously, Steve Mask returned to St. Paul's as well. How big of a difference is that three versus four seed? Spanish Fort defeated both of them, so pretty much locked into that two seed. But the three versus the four seed, how much of a difference are, are we looking at there? Well, one of the things is that's going to determine, you know, who's going to play the number one seed in the other region. And, and that, that makes a big difference when you're going to – three and four, you're going to have to travel. But, you you know, you, you're, you're picking a little better when you're playing a two seed rather than playing the big dog, the number one seed. Uh, it goes a long way. And I know for Steve Mask, you know, that's going to be a big emotional ball game for him tomorrow night facing a, a, the team that he used to coach for like 12 or 13 years. So – you know, you got to take the emotions out. You got to put the strap on your helmet and handle business. But, you know, it makes a difference also, Michael, depending on where that school is, you'd have to play two between a three and a four to go and play a one or a two. You know, that may increase your drive by more hours. That that may affect, you know, your preparation time for your kids. You, you may need to leave, you know, hours earlier to get to this destination. So 
it, it, it's definitely making a big difference as to where you got to go or who you got to go um, to play with. So, so a lot of things go into that, but, but, you know, it's great to make the tournament, but it's also great to kind of control your seating too, where, you know, sometimes it may be better to be a four than a three, but most times it's better to be the three than the four because you don't have to play the, the top seed in that opposing region. Yeah, it, it's a total grind. And I know 6A Region 1 champion, the Saraland Spartans already know that they'll be taking on Hueytown, and that kind of cross-matches with 6A Region 4. And 6A Region right. 4 consists of Oxford, who has that beautiful over 60 million multi-purpose athletic facility that they just unveiled this year. You also have... In that area, you look at Hillcrest, Tuscaloosa, very familiar to the Spartans' journey a year ago to winning that state championship, Bessemer City, and Macadory. So that's who 6A Region 1 is going to wind up matching up with. But, Al, we mentioned the great game that we're going to have an opportunity to do tonight, the Sydney Lanier at Viger. And with a few years ago, we saw, I think it was Baldwin County, go 7-3. and 7-3 three. and three was their overall record, and they wind up missing the playoffs with a 7-3 and three record. Why? Because all three of their losses came within their region, and that's how yeah. tough football becomes here down in South Alabama. And, Corey, uh, we have seen the inverse happen as well. Uh, you, you, you talk about that. But there, there, I've seen uh, situations, and we just talked about B.C. Rain, where they made it into the playoffs with a losing record. Look at Baker last year. Baker had a losing record overall, but they made it into the playoffs because the games they needed to win the most, they won. <laughs> now, they got into the playoffs like at four and six or something, but they made the playoffs. They made the tournament. So, you know, the exact opposite can happen sometimes. It, it always hurts when you have a winning record and you don't make the playoffs. It kind of puts a little stain on your card or stain on your resume. Like, what, 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 why could we not get over the hump? But you, you raise a very good point. The three, or, the three or four games that you lost were the region games that, that hurt you the most. Uh, so that's why it's very important. Those region games, they have a little bit more prominence than those those out of area games. Now, now here's the other opposite that happens. Look at a team like BC Rain, who is in this playoff hunt that's going on right now. Well, for the Red Raiders, they have a win over Excel. They have a win over Davidson, out of region. So that kind of helps them out when you start getting into those tiebreaker situations because you have wins over teams who are in the playoffs and doing well in their region. So you get quality points from those wins to help you out in this tiebreaker situation. So, yes, BC Rain has a winning record right now at 7-2 and two and 5-2 and five and two in region play. But you're right, Corey. They, they could lose another game, and depending on how, to, how it shakes out, they could not make the playoffs. So uh, what's helping them are those out-of-region wins as opposed to some teams who may not have those, but they're still in the fight trying to make it in. So that's the importance of tonight's game with Viger. Like I said at the beginning of the interview, with Lanier being a 6A school and Viger being a 5A school, if they get the win tonight, the Wolves, they're going to gain some more quality points with an out-of-region win, and that's going to go a long way because you have Viger and, and Williamson playing tonight and that's a key matchup with with UMS Wright coming in at four and three in region play. And let's not forget, 
the forfeit that Viger had to give up to UMS Wright. That took a region win away from Viger. So that kind of keeps UMS, UMS Wright still in the hunt. So uh, it is a lot at stake, and it starts tonight, man. I kind of like it. You get some drama tonight, and you get the rest of the drama tomorrow, Corey. Yes, plenty of action and drama, like I mentioned. Normally, you don't see this type of slate on a Thursday afternoon and Thursday evening as far as high school football is concerned. But you look one, two, three, four, five high school games that will be played by our local teams and some of those being on the road like Baker traveling up to Mountain Brook. But the thing here within the last week, really last week as well, and talking to the coaches across the state of Alabama is getting out of this 10th week. Yes, you would love to have the win, but more importantly, you want to remain healthy going into the playoffs. And I know that's one of the things that when we talked to Sidney Lanier's head coach, he was just like, man, we just need to stay healthy. We already don't have huge numbers. But Coach Fagan said with only having 33 on the roster, he has to take on Benjamin Russell. And same thing with Coach Norman traveling up to Mountain Brook. Yes, you want a quality competition, but knowing what's at stake and knowing the kind of quality competition you're going to play. You don't want to get a Bryce Kane or Josh Flowers injured at all, but you still don't want to take a loss either. So it's that great balance. Yeah, Coach Fagan talked about that. One of his key players, young man named Torman McCray, who serves as a punter and also the strong safety. He's a little banged up. If it wasn't probably the last week going into the playoffs, he might play this kid. But he wants to save him for next week against Benjamin Russell, as you said. So, Corey, we have a situation taking place tonight, something I've never seen. They're going to play the ball game without a strong safety. He's just going to take one of his backers and make him like a, like a, like a jack backer or a Sam backer and kind of maybe put him in a rover position. And I, I, had, to, I had to text him back and say, Coach, I'm, sure, I'm short a player. He said, well, I'm not going to play LaPrade because I want to hold him for next week. I want to make sure he's, you know, up to speed. So he said, we're not going to have a strong safety listed. You know, we're going to have a, we're going to have, we'll have 11 out there, but we technically won't have a strong safety. So, you know, those, those kind of little quirks and, and little things happen like that because, you know, you don't want to show your hand, but you're right, Corey, you want to go into the playoff run at 100%. So you look at a team like MGM, who is having a historic season. They're undefeated for the first time in over 50, maybe 55 years, and they're on the bye this week. So they can sit at the house. They can get healthy. They can go scout who they're going to play next week, uh, even though they don't know right now who they're going to play next week. It's three teams up for grabs. But for Coach Golson, you know, the way his schedule ran, he played 10 in a row, and his last week, week 11, he's off. So he kind of has the built-in break. Some schools take a week off. Last year, this same thing happened, and it's ironic we have Viger in this situation. They only played nine games last year, Corey, nine. So they had two They had two buys. Well, that second buy was the last week of the season. And unfortunately, they didn't have that 10th game, and that's how Williamson was able to leapfrog Viger and get to the playoffs because Williamson beat MGM last year. That's a higher classified team. So it kind of made sense for – for Coach Cook to book this game, so now he has 10 games, and who knows, this could be the game that could possibly propel them and keep them in the playoff hunt. 
Al Weeding, our guest this afternoon on the final drive. Al, how can everyone tune in and get their little high school football action? Because, again, when you look at what's at stake, not only for Viger, but across the state of Alabama, we'll be giving you those scenarios. High school football action on the MCPSS Network for the first time this season on a Thursday night. And it's the first time we're going to uh, Wolfpack Stadium and Pritchett as well. So I'm excited about that. We get to go to see their new stadium. But tonight, a special Thursday night edition of the MCPSS High School Football Game of the Week. If you're Comcast, Xfinity customer, check us out on Channel 15. If you are a Mediacom customer, that's Channel 81. If you subscribe to ATTUverse, you can check us out on Channel 99. Also, if you have a Roku-enabled TV or a, a Roku stick, just simply go to the search panel and search for MCPSS TV. And we stream the games on Facebook and YouTube. Very easy to find us there. Just simply put in MCPSS TV Network. We'll get things going around 6.50. Corey's going to be a little nippy tonight, so bring your jacket when we go down on the field to talk to the coaches. But we get to be inside the booth so we can, we can you know, show the muscles with the polo shirts because we'll have, we'll have the window closed tonight in, in the broadcast booth, my brother. No doubt about that. Al Whedon joining us. This afternoon on the final drive, look forward to catching up with Al here in about an hour and a half as we bring you Viger hosting Sydney Lanier, the last ever regular season game for the Sydney Lanier program that was founded in 1910, shutting its doors, not even having an incoming freshman class this year. So that puts them at a disadvantage behind other schools. Al, we'd appreciate it. We'll see you shortly. Hey, thank you so much, Corey. Thank you for allowing us to be on WNSP all season. We really do appreciate it as we show the kids all this love. We'll see you a couple hours, buddy. Absolutely. Al Whedon joining us this afternoon here on The Final Drive. We'll be right back. Hey, this is David Morse of QB Country. When I'm in my car, I always have it tuned in to 105.5 WNSP, the sports station. Welcome back to the final drive on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Brauner joining you on this Thursday afternoon. And Michael Brauner, I know the South Alabama Jaguars play on ESPN2 tonight against the Troy Trojans. But this weekend, a team that they absolutely demolished in the Oklahoma State Cowboys have not lost a game since that South Alabama loss. They're 6-2, and two, and they're taking on Oklahoma. 7-1, and one, and of course, the battle of Bedlam, or the Bedlam battle is whatever you would like to call that huge Oklahoma-Oklahoma State rivalry that will be ending. And I think that when you look at Oklahoma defensive lineman Trace Ford, he transferred to Oklahoma from Oklahoma State and had played close to 32 games for Oklahoma State. When he goes on a local radio station, he says, Coach Gundy haven't spoke to him not once, and he doesn't care that I left. He didn't care that I was leaving when I was about to leave. I tried to inform them he didn't care. I don't think me and the staff have the best relationship. Some of the coaches still text me to this day, but not all of them. 
when I was informing the coaches that I was thinking about leaving, they're like, okay, get on out of here. They're pretty much like, we don't want to talk to you, so that's just the life we live. It is what it is. Man, you're talking about adding fuel to the fire. Not only is this the last opportunity for Oklahoma State to give Oklahoma their losing parting gift before they join the SEC, when you have players that have played on one roster and jumped to another and then publicly make comments like that, what you think about that? Mm. Yeah, there's no love lost in this rivalry by any means. I, I wish they'd work something out like uh, – Georgia and Georgia Tech got going on, although that is another rivalry you might see uh, dismantled here in the future, uh, as it should be, frankly. Uh, but it, it, it is what it is there. Uh, yeah, Bedlam, as it as it were, is certainly one of the more. It's not like the first rivalry, at least we, we have SEC bias, so yeah. it's not the first rivalry that, that comes to your mind when you think of the biggest rivalries in college football, but it is certainly up there in terms of uh, hatred for each other. Uh, and just importance of the game to the two schools. 117 times this has been played, dating back to 1904. If you would like to go to this game, Bronner, what do you think the asking price for a ticket to Oklahoma, Oklahoma State is? $250. Three fifty on the low end? Wow. What do you think the high end is? Wow. Probably $800 then? On the high end? The, the the great seats, $5,000 Wow! on all major resale markets, according to this ESPN article written by Dave Wilson. And he dives in to this bedlam robbery game between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. And you're right. You hate to see things like this end. But last year, the Sooners won 28-13. to 13. So... I think that you look at the disappointing loss that Oklahoma had once again. If you're Oklahoma State, you just want to say, look, sayonara, and here's your parting gift if you're Oklahoma. Take this L to the SEC and like it. But it is one of those, if you're a Midwestern fan or come from that area, especially the way that South Alabama dominated Oklahoma State from start to finish on the road in Stillwater, this one is going to be interesting, to say the least. And this game, once again, being played at Boone Pickens Stadium for Oklahoma State. So, to be honest with you, Bronner, if, if I'm looking at it, I think Oklahoma State is going to continue to give Oklahoma all they can handle. And Oklahoma, the last couple of weeks, not playing great football. You look at the loss to Kansas, the loss that should have happened, to Central Florida, I, I just think Oklahoma State had that wake-up call after South Alabama came calling. Is that a is that a prediction I that heard from you? That is definitely a prediction coming up. You got Oklahoma State beating Oklahoma? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. That's the route there I'm going to go. go. I like it. Same like exact that program that South Alabama dominated from start to finish, and we hope the Jaguars will have a lot of success tonight against the Troy Trojans from start to finish and bring that battle of the belt back to Mobile. Coming up next, we'll have Lindsey Crosby joining us. Lindsey Crosby has been our major league, minor league, and Auburn baseball guru. And as Auburn baseball is playing some exhibition games, getting ready for the spring, 
he'll give us a wrap on the history that the Texas Rangers were able to make last night in the World Series. You're listening to The Final Drive. Corey LeBounty and Michael Brauner right here on WNSP 105.5. Daniel A. Moore, you are listening to WNSP Sports Radio. Welcome back to the final drive on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Michael Brauner on this Thursday afternoon. Make sure you bundle up tonight if you're going to go and check out some high school football action because it's going to be a little bit chilly tonight and bundle up tomorrow night as well but the weather will be warming up this weekend for the port city classic that will be going down at lad people stadium between alabama state and the grambling tigers and last night it went down in arizona only took the texas rangers five games taking the world series four games to one over the arizona diamondbacks winning five to zero last night and securing the first ever world championship and world series being brought back to arlington after 60 plus years and Lindsay, this is one of the teams that i know when i asked you for your postseason prediction you have the rangers making it to the world series but had no idea that in their journey they would set a major league baseball record 11 consecutive road wins on their way to hoisting up that trophy last night this honestly felt like one of those this was destined to happen right like they 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 were just somehow fated to win and there was nothing that could happen that could stop them. I mean, 11 and 0 on the road. Who does that? Like how what are the odds of something like that happening? But the Texas Rangers go out and do it. They win the World Series. I had them in 6 when I came on this show last week, so they even did be one better than I thought they would. Absolutely. They handled their business and you know, you look at Bochi, Bruce Bochi having an opportunity to win multiple world championships. And, and I know that he is a first ballot Hall of Famer, but being able to bring that world championship to the Texas Rangers and you look at the pitcher, you can't forget his name, Corey Seager having a wonderful series and having an opportunity to win the most valuable player for not one, but his second opportunity to be the most valuable player of the world series he's putting his name in some pretty high cotton also yeah like the the big stories of this world series was um adolis garcia ended up having a great postseason but not able to be here why bruce bochi might now be one of the greatest managers of all time like if you think about statistically he's had four championships in the last 14 seasons and the two, the two big takeaways for me is when he's had game sevens, we know winner take all games, he's gone six and zero. Oh. And when he's been in potential clinching games, like last night, he's 17 and four. And 
I know that we talk so much about managers don't always necessarily matter in baseball. And I think in the regular season, that's to some extent that's true. But in the postseason, as we saw, not taking a pitcher out at the right time or, you know, or taking them out too early can turn around and can mess a team up. And Bruce Bochy did everything right in this World Series, got a championship. And I think he has to be in that, that conversation for one of the greatest of all time. And then Corey Seager is just uh, – he, he almost breaks the models when you're trying to evaluate hitters. I mean, he, he's a shortstop who batted 327 with 33 home runs and a 623 slugging percentage. He would be the AL MVP if he played more than 119 games, despite what Shohei Otani did. I mean, he only played 119 games because of injury. He still led the American League in doubles, you know, hit 33 home runs, had an OPS of over 1,000, and, like, he would have been the MVP if not for what Shohei did and the fact that he missed two months of the season. It's just amazing to think about this team, how these guys came together, and fixed all of their deficiencies as they got to the postseason and had an amazing run to the World Series. Lindsay, we have a user in the app that would like to know where do you think Craig Council is going to wind up? Craig Council feels like he's destined to be with the New York Mets, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is new president of baseball operations, David Stearns, uh, used to be in Milwaukee. So these two guys have a very good relationship. And then Craig Council is, by all accounts, the most qualified manager on uh, on the market this year. And he's kind of acknowledged that he understands the role that the next salary that he gets, the next contract he takes, what that can do for other managers, and who has more money to spend than anybody else, the New York Mets. And so we, we heard the announcement this morning. He's interviewing, I believe it's actually supposed to be today. He's interviewing today or tomorrow for the job. I absolutely expect probably by Sunday or Monday we hear that that has already been confirmed and he's been hired because they want to have him in place when free agency starts. Lindsey Crosby, our guest this afternoon here on the final drive on WNSP 105.5. Lindsey doing a tremendous job, host of Locked On Farm, covering the minor league baseball system, writer for the Auburn Daily and the Braves today. And, Lindsey, off-season free agency is going to be what's at stake here. And, you know, as an Atlanta Braves guy, of course you would love to hear the name Shohei Otani and the Atlanta Braves in the same sentence. But where do you ultimately think he is going to wind up landing from a free agency standpoint? And what do you think his price tag will be? So Shohei Otani, uh, every team would get better by adding Shohei. Even the fact that he can't pitch in 2024, I don't think matters. He's such a good hitter that every single team would get better by adding him. But like you said, the price tag, that's going to be the big thing. There's been a lot of speculation. How much would he make if you base it off of the Aaron Judge contract, things like that. It's entirely possible Shohei Otani breaks $400 million, possibly even five hundred depending on the length of the deal. I, I had been pretty insistent all off season. I thought he was, or all season, I thought he was going to be a member of the Mets or a member of the Dodgers. And I'm starting to think that the Giants may be the place where he ends up simply because one, it's the West Coast and we all have been assuming and thinking he wants to stay on the West Coast. 
but also they've been very aggressive at trying to go out and sign a star. They had they were in the mix at the very end for Aaron Judge. They were one of the teams that almost signed Carlos Correa after the initial deal with the Yankees fell oh, the Mets fell through. Uh, the Giants feel like a, a an organization they don't have that long history of a Japanese player like the Mariners do. They have the financial resources. They have a need for a star. I, I, the Giants feel like it's going to be the home, and the question's just going to be how much, right? Does he get five hundred million? Does he get four hundred? What? What does he end up doing? But at age 28, it's going to be a long-term deal, and I, I think he ultimately could get a decade-long contract to play somewhere. Lindsay, speaking of the Mets on that Craig Council question, I want to ask you about Jacob DeGrom. Kind of a weird position, I guess, for him to be in. Obviously signs that big-money contract and is with the Rangers, and you know they somehow find a way to win a World Series and, and turn things around, and you know if you – Heard, if you were told that a year ago, you would have thought he was a big part of that. Uh, moving forward, you know he's going to be 35 next year. Do you expect him to be a big part of this team moving forward that looks to be set up to be a contender for a few years to come now? Well, here's the thing is financially, uh, they're committed to him for four years, right? He's, he's making $40 million in 2024. He'll be rehabbing that second Tommy John surgery. But then... 37, 38, 39, like he's under contract for 37 to $40 million in all those years. And I think we've seen recently that some of your amazing pitchers, your top uh, top of the line pitchers have been able to pitch later into their thirties. I'm thinking about Justin Verlander, uh, Max Scherzer, but also that's kind of your little bit of, of cautionary tale. Max Scherzer has been, we've seen the injuries, especially this year, really take away from what he could be. So uh, ultimately, I expect DeGrom to come back to the rotation. I don't necessarily think he'll be the Jacob DeGrom that we knew him to be, but I think he'll still be a pretty effective pitcher for the duration of that contract. I don't expect him to win the Cy Young again, but I do think he will be a good pitcher. And Scherzer is there for one more season, and I think as Scherzer rides off in the sunset and retires, that's when DeGrom will be coming back from Tommy John and he'll take over as the ace of that rotation for probably three or four years. Now, when we go back and look at the Texas Rangers organization, it has some ties to Mobile, Alabama, because on opening day, Bubba Thompson is the starting outfielder for the Texas Rangers. And I know things didn't go the way Bubba would have liked this season because ultimately now, just last week, he was claimed off of waivers by the Royals and then now is a member of the Cincinnati Reds organization. Mm -hmm. But Bubba Thompson, you look at him being on that opening day roster for the Texas Rangers and robbing a Philadelphia Philly in the outfield on opening day. He's one of those guys that still is eligible for a ring too, isn't he? He is, and a lot of teams, especially when they win that first championship in franchise history, they really go out of their way to make sure that every player who played a role that year and every staff member who was important and who's been with the organization for a while gets a ring. So I would expect Bubba Thompson to get a World Series ring. You know, he played in 37 games. He hit, uh, I don't think he hit, hit any home runs, stole a couple bags, played some decent defense in the outfield. Uh, but I absolutely, even though he is with a different organization, the way that these teams always handle these things, I expect him to get a World Series ring. It's going to be really cool when he comes back home. He shows up at, at McGill Tulin Catholic and 
you know, comes to do some sort of thing with the school in the off season, like those guys always do. And he can flash that giant ring that he has. Yeah, or that, he'll, that he'll get. It's very special opportunity because, you know, they don't give those out. You definitely have to find a way to earn them. And Lindsay, when you do look at now that we're wrapping up Major League Baseball here in 2023, what were the biggest storylines to you outside of the rule changes to pitch count and any storylines moving forward? I know for me personally, it was OK, the Braves falling a little short or a lot short of getting and having the winningest program or franchise for this season and then falling short. What was your ultimate storyline for Major League Baseball this season? I think one of the big ones for me, and you kind of touched on it there, was how we learned this year, more so than any other year, the postseason's a completely different animal from the regular season. When you look at your World Series matchup, and it's a five seed versus a six seed, two teams that didn't win their, their didn't even win their divisions, uh, and all of your juggernaut teams not only are eliminated, but are eliminated early and in mostly sweeps, kind of showed us that building a roster for the regular season and optimizing that roster for the postseason are two different jobs. And there's some teams that are very good at doing it, like the Philadelphia Phillies, and some teams like the Dodgers, like the Braves, who have shown that they don't, they're not quite there yet. I think that's one of the big takeaways for me. And then also just how much we kind of got over the, the the rule changes. Everybody complained when they were going to start it, and then they very quickly, everybody got used to it. There was no pitch clock violations in this World Series at all. All of these games were incredibly dramatic, despite the fact that there was a pitch clock and you couldn't let moments sit. Everything was still high drama, was still good, and most of them were under three hours. So to me, it's how well the rule changes went, and the fact that uh, postseason baseball is completely different from the regular season, and you're starting to see teams understand that and figure out how can we change our rosters to take advantage of that in the postseason. Lindsay, I can't thank you enough for your tremendous knowledge, not only of the minor league system, but of the major league system as well. And we'll continue this conversation with you weekly because as you know, the Auburn Tigers take to the field in the spring from a baseball standpoint, they still have a lot of exhibitions going on here is the winter season approaches. I guess you could call it the beginning of fall slash the beginning of winter as well as they're trying to get a head start on spring baseball. They'll be coming through town actually tomorrow on their way to, to Biloxi where they played this weekend. So uh, fall ball is in full swing right now, both Auburn and Alabama. And we're already talking MLB draft and guys out of the SEC on locked in MLB prospects. So go check it out. Again, Lindsey Crosby, what other ways can people follow you besides that? I know you have the Auburn Daily at Braves Today, Locked On Farm. Any other way they can follow your tremendous podcast and your passion for baseball? Uh, on Twitter at Crosby Baseball, it's probably the best way to do it. Like you said, it's, it's collegebaseballauburndaily.com. It's majorleaguebaseballbravestoday.com. And then the minor league baseball is locked in and it'll be prospects. So just follow everything on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Hey, thanks, Corey. Appreciate it. Lindsay Crosby joining us this afternoon on the final drive. We'll put the finishing touches on hour number two and get you ready for the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. 
coming at you at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Final Drive on WNSP 105.5 with Corey Levowney and Michael Brauner. This is Will Herring, a member of the Auburn family. When I'm in Mobile, I listen to WNSP 105.5. Welcome back to the final drive on WNSP 105.5. Want to thank our guest this afternoon, Tim Brando. Fox Sports chiming in on not only his relationship with the controversial and loved Bobby Knight, but also about the Michigan sign-stealing scandal, South Alabama's chances against Troy tonight. And he also had something and a prediction on the Alabama-LSU game feels that the LSU Tigers are going to beat the Crimson Tide. Al Whedon, MCPSS Television Network, joining us along with Lindsey Crosby as well. So thank you to those guests. And up next, the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report featuring Chase Goodbread from the Tuscaloosa News and Philip Dukes from AuburnUndercover.com will be our guest. And Bronner? South Alabama, you feel good about them tonight on national television? ESPN 2630, the Jags, will they bring back the belt? No. Well, that answered that question very quickly. <laughs> I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but, uh, I mean, if you ask me if I feel good about them, no. I, they haven't given you much reason to feel good about them against Troy in the last – how long what, – what's the exact number? Six, the, years six years in a row. Six years in a row. Yeah, I, I – and it's only like a two-and-a-half-point spread. Troy's not very good this year. They certainly don't have the same defense they had last year, but I also don't think South – I don't know. South has been hard to figure out. It's like they, uh, the game against Southern Miss was like an 18-point spread. and You know, I think I took Southern Miss to cover, but obviously not to win. And South beats them by 49, and then <laughs> your 10-point favorites against the Cajuns, and – you just get hammered. I, yeah. I, I can't figure this team out. So if there's one constant, it's that, the you know, in, let's be honest, South loses to Troy. So I, I, I'm going to. I'm if going you're with the Jaguars. I know you are. <laughs> I'm going with the Jaguars I know you tonight. are. I'm going to go with the Jaguars tonight. Spoiling Carlton, Marshall Day. And again, McGill Tulin. Their day wasn't spoiled. The Dirty Dozen repeat as 7A state champion. So congratulations to the McGill Tulin Lady Yellow Jackets, back-to-back 7A state champions. UMS Wright comes up a little bit short. They bring home that red map, but an outstanding season nonetheless. Sarah Land yesterday comes back with that red map, losing to Mountain Brook, and Mobile Christian comes back with that red map, losing to Plainview. But McGill Tulin, back-to-back 7A state champions, and we'll see if they can now go for the three-peat. Up next, our number three is your Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. Appreciate everyone for tuning in. This is the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report on 105.5 FM WNSP. An hour of the latest news and reports from the Plains and the Capstone with Corey LaBounty and Nick Wiggins. Brought to you by State Farm Agent Heath Parker. Streaming live on the Sound of Mobile app. Here are Corey and Nick. 
Welcome to our number three of the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. And I tell you what, folks, Chase Goodbridge scheduled to join us here on the final drive on WNSP 105.5. And we'll go ahead and we're efforting to, to contact him now. And as we're efforting to contact him, he's going to let us in on this Alabama LSU matchup that we're going to witness. And we've talked in preseason about the matchup and what it's going to mean to winning the SEC West. And it's going to go a long way in regards to, to trying to win it. As far as you look at national championship implications, one game at a time by Nick Saban now. And also earlier today on the Pat McAfee show, he chimed in about what this game not only means, but as far as the college football playoffs matchups are concerned as well. And I know that Alabama over the past years, it's boiled down to Alabama and LSU. And this game is not a top five team in the country matchup, but it is considerable when you do look at what's at stake for not only LSU and them having a Heisman Trophy candidate in Jaden Daniels, but Alabama's aspirations to get back into that national championship title hope. And joining us now, Michael Bronner has done a great job of getting a Tuscaloosa News sports columnist, co-host of the Crimson Cover and Talking Tide. Chase Goodbridge joins us this evening. Chase, how's everything going, my brother? Doing well. How are y'all? Man, absolutely blessed by the best. Thank you for joining us this evening. And Alabama LSU, that that's the, the marquee matchup that SEC Media Days, a lot of people were debating and going through. A lot of media members had LSU winning the West. I know myself and my producer, Michael Bronner, we had Alabama winning the West. But this is that game in Tuscaloosa that can not only make or break Alabama's national championship expectations, but also Jaden Daniels' Heisman Trophy expectations. Yeah, no doubt about it. And by the way, I picked LSU in the West in the preseason. I'm sure I'll be hearing that about that if uh, <laughs> if Alabama loses. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, hu huge conference championship implications. Heisman's on the line for Jaden Daniels. Um, definitely, the, the West is on the line for LSU because they don't need. You know, they're they're they can't lose a second game in league play. Um, and without and then come back and win the division without a whole lot of help. So um, probably more on the line conference championship hopes wise for LSU than Alabama. But Alabama doesn't want to be playing with fire either because if Alabama drops this one uh, and Ole Miss beats Texas A&M, uh, then you're going to be looking at a three-way tie in the West between LSU, Alabama, and Ole Miss. That'll be a whole lot of whole lot of crazy fun with all those tiebreakers yeah those, those tiebreaker scenarios are are not what Nick Saban wants to stay up at night and try to have explained to him or contemplate and I know earlier yesterday you talked about the Alabama athletic director LSU's athletic director with the visionless football happening in the SEC next year a lot of people say look we know that Alabama and Auburn's going to happen. 
the third Saturday in October, people love to smoke the cigars. But to me here lately, because of the dominance, 15 out of the last 16 by Alabama over Tennessee, this Alabama-LSU matchup is a little bit more intriguing here lately. Here lately, no doubt about it. I mean, Alabama's completely dominated the Tennessee series since Saban's gotten there. And, of course, against LSU, it's it's been a lot more back and forth. So, yeah, from, from a competition standpoint, LSU and Alabama definitely looks like the stronger matchup today. But you know what? The way things run in cycles, five years from now, we might not answer that question the same way. You know, you, you never you never know where programs are going to be um, too far down the road. Nevertheless, uh, Alabama LSU is a it's just a bigger game uh, over the last decade or more. Chase, you do look at the quarterback play coming into this game. We talked about Jay Daniels having an opportunity to have his Heisman Trophy moment, and Nick Saban spoke about it in his Monday press conference about. Look, this guy absolutely torched us last year, and he was the difference maker in that fantastic shootout that we did see. Now, Jalen Milrow is starting to come into his own as Alabama's quarterback, and as an Alabama fan, I've said, in Jalen, we trust. And I've said that since spring football continued through the summer and even when he struggled against Texas. But the growth and the development is something you like to see. And the fact that this game is going to be in the friendly confines of Bryant-Denny and the growth that we've seen in Jalen, I know he's happy about that. I definitely agree Jalen Milrow has gotten better over, over the course of the season. I don't think there's any question about it. I think, too, though, the offense around him in a lot of ways has gotten better too. And that's not to mitigate Milrow's improvement. It's more to illustrate how little he was being helped early in the year, right? September, remember, couldn't run the ball at all, couldn't protect him at all, penalties left and right, shotgun snaps all over the place, uh, and, and they still have some problems offensively around him. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're they're running the ball better, not great, but better. Uh, they're protecting him better, not great, but better. You know, you, there's kind of been progress all around, and and uh, that that helps a lot too. Chase Goodbread, our guest on the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report, covers Alabama for the Tuscaloosa News. Chase, how do you evaluate? The offensive line at this point obviously was the biggest issue, especially with the offense, uh, you know, through most of the season. And then, you know, kind of iffy through a lot of the Texas A&M game, through the first half of the Tennessee game. It's shown flashes, but obviously still hasn't fully come together. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, you know, like, a, like we kind of just touched on. It was a hot mess early in the year, and no doubt about it. And it's uh, it's not so bad now. It's not great either. Uh, and th the way I look at it, I mean, to just kind of break it down in the rawest form possible. At the beginning of the year, personally, I felt like J.C. Latham and Tyler Booker were the only two offensive linemen they had who were playing at a high level. And then I, I think over the course of time, Seth McLaughlin came around, started playing better, started playing uh, uh, about as well as he has. Uh, and then they get Jaden Robertson in there at a guard spot. 
he starts to solidify things. Uh, and, you know, Caden Proctor at left tackle has definitely been a big problem as a freshman. He just he, he wasn't ready at the beginning of the season. I, I think that's fair for, for all to see. He's gotten a little bit better, too. He's still probably, I think, the biggest concern. I think Alabama's probably going to work to uh, get him some help with a tight end or a back here and there uh, in pass protection against LSU. Uh, but to me, that's kind of way. That's kind of the way the offensive line improvement has has gone from week one to now. Chase, when you look at mentioning Alabama football and the standard and LSU, of course, we know that historic roster that Ed Orgeron was able to field when they won the national championship with almost every single player offensively and defensively having a chance at the National Football League. You, Alabama has that same type of expectation as well. And you look at tonight when you see Najee Harris and Derrick Henry, two of the former greats, getting ready to square off on Thursday night football. Just so many, so many deep rosters in college football, but none really deeper than what you see at Alabama and LSU year in and year out. Waiting in the wind, you can have these one- and two-year guys who you're like, okay, why didn't you play? Oh, yeah, that's right. You were playing behind a first-rounder or the first overall draft pick, and you see that happening at Alabama and LSU. No doubt the the talent overall between both programs over time has been phenomenal. I mean, to your point, if you go back and look at how many Alabama players and LSU players have been drafted in the last five years, the last 10 years, they're going to be right up there with, with any school in the country. Alabama would probably be one, and LSU, I would imagine, just guess and be top three or top five. So tons of players for sure. I think it's also fair to say that at this point in time, the depth isn't quite there for either one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Alabama's defense uh, looks nasty. There's a lot of talent on that side of the ball offensively. Overall, I don't think they're as talented as, as they have been in years past. LSU, same thing except other side of the ball, right? The offense looks phenomenal, looks unstoppable, number one offense in the country. They're pretty, they're a mess defensively in a lot of ways. I think they got a lot of defensive problems. I mean, you look at how they perform against. Missouri and some of these teams that really lit them up um, exposed LSU defensively in a way that uh, we don't often see. So uh, maybe not quite where it usually is this year, but over over recent history, yeah, for sure. Um, lots and lots of talent on both sides. Chase, let's also look at the fact that you wrote a great article about this four-game stretch. And I know Nick Saban's not hearing about a four-game stretch. He's trying to be 1-0 each and every week. But you look at Alabama, LSU, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, Chattanooga, and then, of course, the Iron Bowl. And then if you're able to run that table in the SEC and control your own destiny, I was talking to George Teague on yesterday and he was giving us Teague's take about what it means as a player to be able to control your own destiny whatever Nick Saban sprinkled on the team or colorful metaphors that he used at halftime of that Tennessee game he needs to go ahead and work some of that magic for the rest of the season as well yeah he needs to put that halftime speech in a bottle right and uh, bust it out another week no doubt about it uh it's a second half team for sure, 
but never more so than against Tennessee. A bigger deficit at halftime against Tennessee than some of these other games they've trailed at halftime this year. And uh, better opponents, by and large, too. So, yeah, you're right. It, it's, uh, uh, it's huge for Alabama to finish this, this last four uh, unbeaten, get to the SEC championship game. Probably going to see Georgia there. And and that that's going to be an awful high mountain to climb, tall mountain to climb for for Alabama. But for now, uh, four games is kind of what's staring you in the face. UTC, UTC aside, uh, to carry forward whatever this team wants to do goal wise. Well, I know goal wise is for Miro to take advantage of a missing. Makai Wingo, starting defensive tackle and starting cornerback Zai Alexander being out for the LSU Tigers. I know their secondary has really been the focal point since their opening game against Florida State. And I know Milrow's explosive passes of 20 yards or more have continued to increase also. But let's look at the big differences that it's going to make in this LSU defense. You can say the next man up syndrome is how it's supposed to be, but you talked about the lack of quality NFL depth that's there for Alabama and LSU. How huge of a difference or how big of a factor do you think this is going to be in Milrow trying to feast on this secondary and take advantage of the starting defensive tackle being out? I think Wingo, of, of all the injuries, I think definitely Wingo is the biggest for LSU and the one that impacts things the most for this game because Alabama's got to be able to run the ball uh, with some consistency, I think, in order to keep this uh, to keep this game probably in the 20s is what Alabama would love to do. They certainly don't want it in the 40s points-wise. Uh, so that, that, that means you better run the ball and chew a little clock when you want to. And Wingo is a obviously he can get after the quarterback too as a pass rusher, but you take him out of there as a run stopper, and it's gonna it should give Alabama a little bit more daylight. Now they got some talented guys on the defensive line. We were talking earlier about how the defense is not as talented as usual. Well, the front, the DL, it, it's it's probably old school LSU legit when you if you include Wingo anyway. Um, but Mason Smith, obviously one of the best. Harold Perkins. When he comes off the edge is a huge part of that front. He's not always on the edge. He plays off the ball some, too. Fantastic player. Saban mentioned him yesterday. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, injury-wise, I think Wingo is the big one because uh, because it might give Alabama, Alabama a better chance to, to move the ball on the ground. Chase, are you surprised that Jermaine Burton, really, I guess the receiver group as a whole, I guess the lack of production from Ja'Cory Brooks has been a surprise, but really the, the fact that Jermaine Burton is is pacing the group and really the wide receiver one, I, I'm a little bit surprised at the way things have gone in this wide receiver room. Yeah, Brooks's production and, and his snaps going south definitely is something that, that few people saw coming. Malik Benson, the junior college kid, has come in and, and played pretty well. Um, but Burton has developed as a as a a deep more of a deep threat guy, I think, and not just running by people, but being able to win one on ones in traffic deep downfield, right when they can get single coverage down there. Burton's athletic enough; you can throw throw it up to him a little bit. Um, you know, as long as you don't have to worry about the safety getting over, and 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 he can make a play. And Milrow's seen that a few times this year, and he's he's hit some big 
Sean Gaines with that this year. Isaiah Bond, too, obviously a serious deep threat for Alabama, too. He's uh, uh, super fast and, and uh, gives, gives Milrow another deep shot guy. Chase, want to get your prediction here on the Alabama LSU finale. I mean, you look at the epic nine to six battle that we had to see almost a decade ago, and you see that Alabama is able to get their revenge in that national championship game. But you know, look at the conference of the SEC, kind of like what you're seeing in the Big Ten. Alabama and Georgia, of course, being the top two hopes there right now for the conference. And in my college football playoff prediction, I had Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio State, all teams that are coming from the same conference. And that was just my preseason CFB prediction. But let me get what your thoughts are here on the outcome because, to me, the secret weapon is Will Riker, the SEC's all-time leading scorer and I know you don't want to kick him or have him out there kicking field goals instead of touchdowns in the red zone area, but your predictions for the game. Yeah, I like Alabama in a close one. I think, as I mentioned, Alabama needs to keep this game in the 20s if they can, and certainly certainly the 30s is about the limit for Alabama to, to win. Uh, probably like Alabama in the neighborhood of 30 to 28, 30 to 27, something in that neighborhood. Um, a tight game for sure. I think Alabama gets it done at home. Absolutely love that prediction. And Chase, how can everyone follow all of your fantastic coverage in the Tuscaloosa news of the Crimson Tide and any other podcasts or opportunities that you have to highlight Alabama as well? Yeah, of course, TuscaloosaNews.com is where you can get uh, the, the football coverage from myself and our fine beat writer, Nick Kelly. The Twitter feed is at Chase Goodbread, just my name, simple as that. And uh, I'm on uh, the Talking Tide podcast with Travis Ryer of BOL and also uh, host uh, Crimson Cover Television on WVUA 23, which is, uh, of course, the university station here in, here in Tuscaloosa. Chase, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us and preview Alabama LSU. And we look forward to your prediction not only coming true, but talking to you again here on this show once again. Thanks a bunch. Chase Goodbridge joining us this evening here on the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. And when we come back from this break, we'll be joined by Philip Dukes, from AuburnUndercover.com to give us the Auburn side of things, not only coming off of their first conference win, but also having an opportunity to string back-to-back -back wins against the Vanderbilt Commodores. The Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report returns right after this. Hi, this is Saran Stacy. You're listening to WNSB 105.5. Welcome back to the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. Call now at 694-1055 or take part on the WNSP app. Once again, Corey and Nick. Welcome back to the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. Cora Labounty, along with Michael Brauner, joining you on this Thursday afternoon. And Philip Dukes, also known as Dukes the Scoop, gives us the Auburn breakdown. Philip Dukes, a phenomenal Auburn sports writer for Auburn 24-7 and AuburnUndercover.com. 
Dukes, welcome to the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. Uh, Corey, man, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity, and it's always good to be on. Absolutely. And for Auburn Tiger fans, it was a great opportunity to witness the coming out and breaking out party, finally, of Peyton Thorne along with Jarquez Hunter being on the same page offensively. Auburn with a little fast tempo equated to a big-time win, the first win of the Southeastern Conference season for the Tigers. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, tempo really played a really big part in the offensive success. Uh, you're starting to see Jarquez Hunter looks like he's getting his legs up under him like for the first time this season consistently where he's starting to break off some of those uh, chunk runs that he's uh, famously made uh, himself. Uh, well, well, he's kind of gotten us accustomed to as uh, Auburn fans or people who watch Auburn. And I think the most important thing that I saw last week was Peyton Thorne being able to hit that deep out or that deep fade route uh, he did it a couple of times, but one in particular, the Shane Hooks on the RPO. I think uh, a RPO and the repass option it only works if you're ever if you're if you're able to incorporate the pass. And I think last week uh, Auburn did a really good job, Thorne in particular, of being accurate off of his RPO opportunities. And I think you saw the results come in the box score. Absolutely, you saw those results in the box score. And as I was talking to Andy Burcham, the voice of the Auburn Tigers on yesterday, he was mentioning the way that the ball was distributed and probably not having seen that since Bo Nix was able to do that. I mean, that's a great sign. I don't care if it is just one reception by several different guys. The fact that he's finding them, they're open, they're accurate passes on time, that's huge for getting Peyton Thorne's confidence going down this last four-game stretch. Yeah, I think when you have the, the distribution that Auburn did have when it comes to the vertical passing game, it, it shows that he's on time, and more importantly, it shows that he's playing within the system and reading his progressions. So a lot of times you have quarterbacks that get locked into one guy because they feel comfortable getting the ball to that guy. When you have a guy that's able to, or a quarterback, excuse me, when you have a quarterback that's able to lock into the system more so than a receiver and distribute the ball evenly, then you start to break those tendencies that a quarterback would have and where the defense can key in on. Maybe they say the safety to that side or they take that nickel or that start back and put them underneath because they know that's where you're favoring. By being able to hit the open man regardless of who it is, that really kind of puts pressure on the defense to keep it honest. Well, that's one of the things that they definitely were able to do. And you look at if Auburn is able here down this stretch to put back-to-back -to -back halves together to where you look at 27 points being the total against Mississippi State, but finding a way to let's see if we can score maybe 42 or 47 points Auburn coming down the stretch, I know that every coach, coach speak is saying one week at a time, one week at a time. But you look at Vandy, you look at Arkansas, you look at New Mexico State, and, of course, anything goes as we prepare for the Iron Bowl at Jordan-Hare Stadium at the end of November. Yeah, I think the most important thing you want to do is stack games. You want to be able to stack games offensively and defensively where the offense performs so well that 
was kind of overlooked, but they did give up 180 yards rushing to Mississippi State. So by being able to stack games on both sides of the ball, you'll see that point that point total start to increase as the defense creates more opportunities for an offense that's going tempo. One thing about it, when you go tempo, you don't want to rush to a three and out. So when you have an offense that is moving, that is getting first downs and playing tempo, it takes pressure off of the defense. So now what you want to see as you continue to try to stack games is the defense and offense playing complementary football with each other. So let's see if the offense can put up maybe 28 points and see if the defense can put the Auburn, can put the Auburn offense in a favorable situation with a turnover where a game that usually probably would offense where they usually probably would have scored 28 can put up 42 based on the fact that they got the ball for that first snap inside of the red zone. I think those are the type of things that allow Auburn to be more explosive when it comes to putting up points. Let's talk about Auburn and their explosiveness from a recruiting standpoint. It kind of got glazed over a little bit yesterday. Four-star running back Jamarian Burnett decommits from Auburn after saying his recruitment is wide open and this great running back from Aniston High School is not the first one to decommit from Hugh Freeze. And ultimately, I look at it's going to depend on what some of the backs in that crowded running back room decide to do from an NFL standpoint. But Jamarian Burnett, did that did that kind of shock you at all with him decommitting? Uh, no, nah, it really didn't shock me. Um, there were already some rumblings about him possibly decommitting or if he would continue to be a fit in Auburn's running back class, especially as the board readjusts itself uh, for, as far as Auburn recruiting, and you find out how many slots you have available in each position. So we don't know if that means that Jarquez Hunter said he's coming back to school. We don't know if that means that Auburn has identified somebody that they like a little bit higher on the board there. We also don't know if it means that you know maybe Auburn is saying, for what we have, what type of running back do we need? And I think there may have been more of a mutual split than it was just the running back uh, decommitting. I think uh, I think I think Fat Burnett wants to be at Auburn and uh, wants to try to figure out a way that they can work it out. I don't think it's a thousand percent over with, um, as things change uh, pretty frequently in the world of recruiting. But I do think that was more of a mutual type deal where Auburn is kind of reassessing its needs. And so uh, we'll see how it goes. But I, Auburn doesn't have to take a running back in this class, especially if Jarquez Hunter returns. And if they maybe, in the, from the transfer portal perspective, if they start to identify guys that may be a better fit earlier on. And one thing I do know is that Auburn is all in <clears throat> on Alvin Henderson, uh, the great 2025 running back in Alabama. So I think uh, Auburn isn't as pressed for a running back as they are at other need at, at other positions. And I think you'll start to see those needs come to the forefront in the coming weeks with uh, multiple offers going out. Philip Dukes, our guest here this evening on the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Tide and Tiger Report. Dukes the Scoop is how you can follow him on X or Twitter. Also does a great job as a sports writer at Auburn 24-7 and AuburnUndercover.com. And I know that coming into this season, Dukes, if you had to put a win total on Hugh Freeze in year number one, I know Michael Bronner and I said 
Seven wins would be phenomenal. Nine wins would get you national coach of the year there for sure. But what, what were your expectations and how you felt that Hugh Freeze was going to do trying to stock back up the cupboard that Brian Harson left bare? Yeah, I thought that uh, that eight or nine wins wasn't out of the realm of uh, expectations. I really thought that uh, we would that Auburn would get a lot more out of uh, Peyton Thorne passing the ball early on. Uh, seeing that the offense didn't really click how it was probably expecting to, uh, you see now the the kind of bright side of it is maybe seven wins, an extremely great season is eight wins, which you really can't really complain about if you're an Auburn fan. If you're able to pull out eight wins and a win against them, I think the season is a huge success, especially with the momentum that would provide in recruiting. Uh, seven wins and a loss to Bama. If you win, if you went out, you win the next three and you lose to Bama, I still would consider that a success. Uh, coming off of a five-win season, uh, you've identified multiple young stars uh, that, that that guys who have stepped up in the roles that you probably weren't expecting before the season. Uh, you do have a very, very senior secondary and a little bit on the offensive line, so you're going to have to get back in the portal. But uh, where Auburn is right now, I think uh, with the opportunity to be bowl eligible to get back into a bowl game, possibly winning seven games, uh, I think those are really winnable games before the Bama game. And uh, as you said, uh, the magic that goes along with the Iron Bowl at Jordan-Hare Stadium, uh, a couple, I think a couple of years ago, uh, Auburn had a really good shot at winning the Iron Bowl. There was a, a play where I got, I think, stepped out of bounds that a lot of people uh, attribute to that loss. But really close game, and I think the fans at Jordan Hare had just as much to do with that that closeness of that of that game as anything. And I think that'll be no different this year. So I would consider the season as long as they can get in that seven, get the seven wins. I consider it to be a major success. You mentioned complimentary football, offense and defense being on the same page for Auburn during the same game. I'm going to go to that defensive side of the football. want to get your thoughts on Eugene Asante's play this entire season, along with the health of a couple of athletes here that we know along the Gulf Coast in Nehemiah Pritchard and DJ James. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at uh, what uh, Eugene Asante was able to do after playing scout team last year, it makes you kind of wonder, like, man, what, what was the uh, what was the defensive staff seeing last year that would uh, that would allow them to have a guy like that on scout team? And I just think uh, some certain coaches are able to bring certain things out of certain players. Uh, you may remember see, uh, being on the Gulf Coast, a guy by the name of Deshaun Davis, who everybody saw as a package deal to Auburn with uh, the, a great, highly ranked uh, linebacker out of high school, Trey Williams. Uh, he was basically an afterthought. Uh, a lot of people thought that he would never play at Auburn. You see a, a change in the uh, in the defensive coaches. He goes out and he becomes the first all-SEC linebacker since Travis Williams, who was his coach at the time. So when you go and look at what different coaches are able to bring out of different players, Eugene Asante flashes in a lot of different ways, and athleticism is probably what I see the most of. Uh, he has a frame that a lot of people uh, – felt was similar to Owen Papos, but he just didn't have that production. Now you're starting to see him put it all together. DJ James and Nehemiah Pritchard are both pros, in my opinion. Uh, I think they'll both get a look. DJ James has a chance to be 
a day one pick. Uh, if he can test well in the combine, from what I from what I hear from a lot of uh, people in the know. As far as Nehemiah Pritchett, probably one of the fastest players on the team. He's going to test extremely well, and I want to be surprised if he's a day two pick in the NFL draft. So when you have guys who have professional potential playing together and being able to play off of each other, it makes the whole secondary raise their level of play, especially when you're not getting the type of pass rush that you would expect to get for the type of plays that these guys are making. You're seeing quarterbacks get time, and they're having to be in coverage for a, a, a very uncomfortable amount of time when you think about how much time the quarterback has in order to make a play. So just kudos to those guys. Uh, they're showing their leadership and their veteran ability, and they're pretty much the anchor for the defense, which is in the back. Minute or two left with Philip Dukes. He's Dukes the Scoop on Twitter, CBS Sports 24-7 and Auburn Undercover. Philip, I want to ask you about Peyton Thorne. I think it was Zach Blackerby. I had asked him about the quarterback situation for next year. And the, get, granted, this was before the Mississippi State game where he played certainly the half of his Auburn career in that first half. Uh, Zach had said he thought, you know, it's more likely than not that Auburn's going to be looking to the transfer portal again next year. Has your opinion on the future outlook of Peyton Thorne changed after one game against Mississippi State, or are you kind of chalking it up as, it was Mississippi State, I need to see more? Uh, I don't think the outlook changed. I think that uh, you just saw him playing more to his potential. But even with that being said, uh, I'm not sure the ceiling as is high as you would need in order to play national championship-level football. So I think that Auburn would probably still visit the portal. If he plays like that the rest of the season, I think you would still see Auburn explore the portal just to see what's out there because there's a level of quarterback play needed to win a national championship. And I'm not saying that Thorne can't get there, but as far as some of the tools, there are some physical limitations that he's not going to be able to grow out of over the past, over the next year. I mean, uh, it, there's, there's not a 4 5 40 coming out of there. There's not a, 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 six, a, a ball that can travel 60 yards in the air uh, with the flick of a wrist. It's, he is who he is. I think that he's a talented guy. I think that uh, he, he's going to be able to win you some games. But when it comes to going to that next level of trying to be in the college football playoffs and come out victorious, uh, uh, which I think that Hugh Freeze's total goal is, is to bring a national championship back to the plains, I'm not sure if you have that level of athleticism that you would need in order to accomplish that. So I think they'll do things in order to make sure that they uh, leave no stone unturned when it comes to the pursuit of a national championship. Last question for Philip Dukes. Dukes the scoop on Twitter. So Auburn 21-21 and one all time against Vanderbilt. You got a 12 and a half point spread this week on the road in Nashville. What's the? I won't ask you for a direct prediction, but what's the general feeling? Obviously Auburn, you know, it was a gauntlet of a schedule in the middle of the season, but certainly has a chance to get to seven and four headed into that Iron Bowl, and you never know what's going to happen in that Iron Bowl. But surely, I mean, this is a game. Next week, you, Arkansas is struggling, too. You never know what's going to happen there. But this is a game that Auburn's got to win. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you look at the rosters, there haven't been a lot of games in the SEC that Auburn's played where you go look at the roster and you say, Auburn is clearly the more talented team here. I think Mississippi State was the first time that you saw Auburn really be able to just look at the talent from A to B or the, or the first 22 that ran out, and you said, okay, Auburn's a better team. They just have to execute. Uh, 
I think this it'll be the same thing at Vanderbilt. Uh, Auburn will be the better team as long as they execute. They won't lose this game. But um, I think it'll be interesting to see some of the guys from Vanderbilt who are performing. One in particular that I'll be watching for is London Humphreys. He's a 6'3 receiver out of Nashville. Had a lot of interest in Auburn uh, out of high school. His father was a track star at Auburn uh, years ago. And uh, he's somebody that I think is, is, is going to outperform his position or, or, or the school that he's at at Vanderbilt. And I wouldn't be surprised if a guy like that would kind of look around at the portal. And uh, with there's another guy in the secondary, the safety at Vanderbilt. His name slips me. But they have some good guys who I think probably would be exploring the portal. And so I, I, I do urge people to just look at some of the guys for Vanderbilt because they have some players, but I don't think they have the total roster depth that Auburn has. So I think that uh, Auburn will uh, – I, I think Auburn will cover the spread this week and uh, build some healthy momentum going into the rest of their season. Philip Dukes, how can everyone follow your fantastic Auburn Tigers coverage as we move forward? Oh, thank you, man. Uh, Twitter, at Dukes, D-Scoop, D-U-K-E-S-T-H-E-S-C-O-O-P, and uh, Instagram, at Dukes the Scoop, same way. Thank you so much, guys. Always enjoy our time with Philip Dukes. Appreciate it, Philip. We look forward to having you on once again very soon. All right, for sure. Can't wait. All right. We'll put a bow on a Thursday edition and of the Gulf Coast Auto Tech Titan Tiger Report. On the other side, when we get back, almost Friday, on WNSP 105.5. Hi, this is Bo Manning, a co-producer of Training Days, Rolling with the Tide, of Village Day, WNSP 105.5 Mobile.